on Thursday to be at the airport to welcome our new refugee family. I got a story to tell you. So uh, they originally are from Pakistan. They spent most of their time um, in security in Malaysia and uh, came from Malaysia. Now, again, we're talking warm weathered countries for the most part. <laughs> so there's the, the youngest boy. Uh, we're waiting for Mike Schrader to, to bring the... Um, the van around where he's got a bunch of parkas and hats and mitts and stuff and because we wanted the family to go outside. Now, again, I show up. I got my jacket open, no gloves. I got a, a turtleneck on. And, you know, that's good. I'm used to it. It's minus 40. It's no big deal, right? Like, that's how we dress. And so, uh, the, the bill, the father says, well, should we go in the car like this? I go, no, no, no. We have something for you. You just wait. So the little guy, we're, we're waiting by the doors, we're waiting for Mike to come around. The little guy goes to the front of the doors, and he stands, and they open up, right, and then they close, and so he's playing with that a bit, and then he starts doing this, and he's letting the, the blast of chill just come towards him, and, and then he would run away and warm up, and then he'd go back and, and do it, and I just, I just laughed. I just thought, this is fabulous. So then we get them together, and we get them all hooked up, and we get all their, their stuff together, and a big shout-out to our refugee community and uh, Don Marie and Chima and Mike and all the others who made this happen. Uh, else in the, so that right now, our family's uh, 14 days in quarantine. They're at an uh, Airbnb that we got them. And then from there, there we have a, a Grant Keniston area close to schools, close to everything else. And uh, they're set. So we're, we're really happy. And a lot of people put a lot of work into it. So I say thank you. But they get their parkas on. And I lead them towards the van. And I turn around and I look, and the little guy's right behind me, and sure enough, he makes a right-hand turn to the biggest snowbank you can see. And, and you've you got to imagine, he's got gloves on, and he was still trying to figure out how these gloves work. And what he does is he gets down on, on his knees, and he puts his hands into the snow, and maybe you can't see it there, so he puts his hands into the snow, and he starts doing this. And then he grabs a handful, and he throws it in the air, and he lets it come down. And then again, he goes back to the snow, and he does it, and then... Like a boy, he forms a snowball. And, and who does he hit? His sister. No sooner did she comes out. And my understanding is that Mike and him were tossing snowballs after they got to the Airbnb too. So again, it was great. They're safely here and uh, looking forward to introducing you to them as well. Now, if you're a guest here, we're jumping. We pick a book of the Bible, walk through it. We're jumping back into First Peter. In the New Testament there, 1 Peter chapter 3, so grab a hold of your Bibles. I'd encourage you to take a hold of pen and, pen and paper if you have. If not, open up your notes on your, on your phones because you'll probably need it today. Last few weeks, we've looked at um, uh, Peter dealing with the topic of submission. Not a popular topic of submission to government, submission to employers or masters, and submission in marriage. Now, as we read, we have to ask ourselves the question now, how it applies to us today, is how do we as Christians interact in a world that's hostile to Christianity? This is an important question for us because in the church today, there, we are in a new position of becoming an obscure, marginal Jesus movement in a society that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity. It used to be that people were somewhat friendly towards the the place of Christianity in society, but something has changed. And honestly, this isn't, it shouldn't be news to any of us. We realize that culture is becoming increasingly hostile to faith, and at the very least, wants Christians to keep their faith private. 
So how do we not only live within a hostile culture, but actually think about transforming it? There are two, basically two ways that, that Christians typically think about living in a hostile culture. One way is to withdraw from it, to become what I call sectarian. These folks believe that culture is so bad, culture is so corrupt, uh, that we, we have to be vigilant against culture and be careful about being polluted by it. And they, they think that the main problem with other Christians today is that they've been too influenced by the world. And so now that what they see is they have to withdraw. They have their own little communities, their own little bubble, so to speak. On the other hand, you have the opposite approach. The accommodation approach, or the approach that I call synchronistic. They believe that churches have become too isolated in culture. They're out of tune. They're disengaged. And now what these churches do is they invite culture and other philosophies and other worldviews at large to infiltrate the church. And so when you live in a hostile world, how do you respond? Do you withdraw from it? Or do you stay involved? You know, classic example, uh, of a, let's say one of your non-Christian friends invites you out to a bar uh, tomorrow night for drinks with some of their friends, and you know that the conversation will not be G-rated. Now, some of you are there thinking, well, that's the problem today. Too many Christians are comfortable going to bars, and they should really know better. Others of you today may think this, that the problem with Christians today is that too many of them are sticks in the mud, and they need to get out a little. Now, I hope you can see that both approaches have very real problems. If we withdraw from culture, we'll never have any influence. We'll live in our little bubbles and nobody will really care. On the other hand, if we're too afraid of being different, we'll fit in and nobody will think that we're different at all. So what do we do? I actually think that Peter begins to tackle this question and others as to how we're supposed to respond and what will it cost and why should we be willing to pay that cost. In this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter continues his encouragement to the early Christians to adopt a Christ-like posture with other people. So much hurt is caused willingly and unwillingly by people in our world today, is it not? And so 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22 should actually serve as a great reminder that we have been called, if you're a believer, you identify as a Christian, we have been called to a higher way of relating to other people. To be a blessing to them regardless of how we feel treated by them. Let me remind you what Peter wrote to the church in 1 Peter chapter 2. We went over this already way back. He starts out by laying out five sins for us to avoid. He wrote, he said, rid yourself, again, he's talking to the church, rid yourself of all malice, of all deceit, of all hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Now, we jump to uh, the third chapter, verse 8, and he mentions five virtues to practice. Five things to get rid of, five things to put back in its place. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and humble. Now, Peter starts off by saying, finally, and obviously it's not the end of the book. There's still more coming. But it's actually the end of a thought process. He's been talking about the believer's response to government, to masters and slaves, husbands and wives. And now he talks about the believer's response in the church 
specifically in difficult times. Because if you didn't know, and some of you do, the church was being persecuted. First, he tells us to be like-minded. He's talking to the church. He goes, look at be like-minded. Another way of saying it is live in harmony, live in unity. Interesting that harmony and unity starts in the church. This is what we're supposed to be. Believers should seek to live in harmony with one another. This not only means that we, we seek to work out our discord and, and try to live without it. We need to be on the same page, but we also need to have what is called doctrinal unity. We need to know what we believe. We have to seek to have doctrinal unity in the church as we speak truth and love. This doesn't mean that we all have to agree on everything. We may agree to disagree on some less important matters, but we must agree to be of one mind on the things that matter. The things that matter, the, the things that have, have based our historic faith on. Listen to what Paul said about how the church should be run by the role of the pastor. The Apostle Paul, he said this, It was he who gave some to be the apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature in attaining the whole measure of fullness. So realistically, as I look at myself, one of the reasons that God has given pastors is so that the church can come to a unity in the faith. Yes, we should not be divided over the minors, but it's the leader's responsibility to help the church to work in a unity in doctrine. It's also each member's responsibility as well. We have work in, that we have to do to be in one mind, to be unified, to know what we believe, to know what we stand for, and we have to work as a church together in doctrinal unity. There's also, uh, it clearly refers to working in the church towards unity in any situation. This includes scenarios when we look in the scripture, we see within the church other people are fighting. Go figure. Listen to what, again, Paul, his appeal to the believers in the church of Philippi. I plead with Euodia, sorry, and I plead with Cynthia, why can't they just have normal English names? Uh, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And yes, I ask you, my true companion, to help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. These two women were scrapping. And everybody knew about it. And yet they helped Paul. Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Believers need to be sympathetic. Unified, Peter continues to write, says, look, be sympathetic. Sympathetic means to share the same feeling or having compassion for another. You know, we are willing to feel what our brothers and sisters feel. This is what Peter wants us to do. Carry, Paul writes to the Galatians, he says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Being sympathetic is, is the opposite of selfishness and self-centeredness. And this is very important for a congregation when you think about it that was suffering attacks from the outside, right? But also from within. There would be people mourning losses. At the same time, you're going to have people celebrating victories. It would be very easy to detach yourself from the rest of the church, um, especially if one's experience was different than the other's. This happens every day in our churches when you think about it. 
But this is not how the body should work. This is not how a family should work. When the body is sick, the rest of the members recruit um, uh, one another to help in the healing process. That's our job. We see this when our body takes on a fever. Some of you know what this is all about much more personally. The body is responding to a sickness and it gets a fever. Why? To help heal itself. This should happen within the church as well. We should be sympathetic. We should share both the success and the problems. Celebrate and mourn. Again, Paul writes in Romans, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Do you rejoice with others when people succeed? Do you mourn with others when they are hurting? This is what needs to take place within the church. Look at what the writer of Hebrews tells us. He said, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. In other words, don't forget, even when it's good for you, remember there's others that are not in the same place as you and they need your hands. Do we react this way is the question that we have to ask ourselves when a member of our church is hurting or when our member of our church is promoted. How do we react? How do we celebrate? And then Peter says, he continues on, he says, we need to respond by loving one another as family, loving each other as brothers and sisters. The word he uses there is phileo. Brotherly love. Familial love. As believers, we have become close. And in some places closer than natural family members with the church. Some churches speak to each other in terms of brother and sister all the time. I grew up in that kind of environment. Other churches see these terms as archaic and uncomfortable. Brother, sister. But we really are brothers and sisters. Spiritual brothers and sisters. Paul, sorry, Peter calls us to have the same affection for each other as we would our biological siblings. We are called to love in family. And yes, families have problems. We all know that. But we must love them through it. We are family. And because we love as brothers and sisters, we have a tremendous loyalty to and responsibility to each other. That's part of the church. That's part of us coming together. I actually saw that demonstrated with our, 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 uh, all the people who gathered around, both in the community committee for our refugee family, but also in people who gave. We gathered around people in need. Look what Paul commanded in our normal relationship with church members. He's writing to Timothy. He's writing to a young pastor who's got some problems going on in his church. He says, don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Paul tells us, young pastor, this is how we need to deal with each other. Peter then goes on and he has another word. It's the word compassionate. The word here is actually a physical word. It speaks of the inner bowels of a person. It means to be moved so much by a situation that you have to respond. Some have called compassion feeling in action. I really like that definition. It's feeling in action. It's more than just sympathy. Compassion compels us to respond. We see this in Matthew 14 where Jesus looked and he saw a large crowd and the scripture says he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. We should feel that way when we see members in our community who are struggling and are in pain. And it doesn't do much to feel pain and not respond when you think about it. We should be moved in such a way that we respond with action. 
And the word there implies a deep feeling for someone, a tender heart. We're exhorted to have this kind of feeling for one another in the church family. I have to say that that's, uh, when, when writing this, the, the one thing that came to mind is our work in Iswatini. And I, I'll refresh you, some of you. Um, had the opportunity to go to uh, Iswatini, which is formerly known as Swaziland, down in the, in the base of South Africa. So they're a little kingdom right in the center of, well, a little bit to the west of the country of South Africa. And going to all these different care points and seeing the needs that were there, the hunger that was there. Going to the Manguini care point that we now are committed to providing food for. And in that process, realizing the story behind it, that there's a garbage dump across the street. And that's how people made their living. They would go and they would forage. And I watched them. I watched them take aluminum and make pots and pans for cooking. Forge them down and rebuild them again. Repour them. Repour the molds. But the story behind it is what the, the children of that community, Manguini, in order for the parents to eat and to survive, they would sell their kids for sex. You cannot walk into a place like that. And I said, I said to, my, to Sharon when we were there, I said, we have to do something. It's one thing to be sympathetic. It's a whole another thing for us to have compassion. We have to do something. And that affects us in so many different realms in our world today. Responding to one another with humility. You know, sometimes there's so much pettiness in the church. All that pettiness can be attributed to pride. In a church or actually in any other relationship going through discord, if I could use that word, it's actually necessary for the members to humble themselves to one another. It's pride. When you think about the basis for most of our arguments, pride is the root of almost all of our disputes, whether at home or in the office, wherever. We feel disrespected. We feel we're not cared for, right? Our pride rises up, and we're angry. However, humility enables us to lower ourselves in order to work for peace and for the good of the whole, putting others before ourselves. Listen to what Paul tells the Philippians who were struggling, again, division within the church. Like I said, they had two women who were scrapping it out. What does Paul say? He says, do nothing without, uh, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He's encouraging a divided congregation to care more about others and their good than themselves and their pride. It's interesting how Peter and Paul dovetail so much. Here we have Paul saying, consider the interests of others. A person who is humble listens to the gripes and the complaints of, complaints of other people. They're not quick to become angry or even when wronged because they care more about others. They care about what they're going through. And sometimes they just need to get it off their chest. And so we as believers have to be humble in our relationships with one another. These five attitudes are necessary within the church. This is what Peter is trying to say, especially with the church is going through hardship or division, or in this case, persecution. Because trials will often reveal the ugly in our hearts, will they not? 
And therefore, when we're going through them, we got to seek to respond with these godly attitudes. This is what Peter wants us to understand. Remember what's happening. These, these people are facing heat because of their faith in Christ. And frankly, it would have been easier for Peter to have told them that, you know, you can withdraw from the world, don't worry, or just assimilate it, don't worry about it. But instead, he says, don't withdraw from the world, but at the same time, don't be assimilated by the world either. Even when it gives them grief, he causes them and causes them problems. He tells them to, to be out there, to be engaged and in relationship with the world, and yet be distinct by virtue of your faith. Your faith needs to be different. He goes on to say this. He says, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but on the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to you, uh, to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Peter is encouraging his church to live grudge-free. When we repay evil with evil, it's a sure sign that we haven't forgiven. Let that sit there. When we insult in the same way that we've been insulted, it shows that we carry grudges. You think about it, how many fights break out because of some supposed offense that happened years ago. There's no forgiveness, and we carry grudges. And yet, Peter tells us to do what? To be full of blessing. This is countercultural. He's saying we should be so full of God that when we are wronged, that when we are insulted or wounded, that we ooze blessing on our enemies, both inside and outside the church. You know, our sinful nature wants to return evil for evil, right? The spirit nature returns insult or blessing. And you are, and I are called to be blessings to our enemies. Think about that. That is the call to the believer. When we suffer, we bless. When we're slandered, we bless. When we're hurting, we bless. Why? Because Peter says we are called to bless. And as we bless and suffer and bless still, what does he say? He says we will inherit the blessings of Jesus, whose suffering and blessings that we were to emulate. Remember, it was Jesus in Luke 23 where he's about to be crucified. He says what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's praying for them. He's actually blessing them. Peter goes on and he says, for, whatever, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And what he's actually doing here is he's actually quoting Psalm 34. So you have to ask yourself the question, what is he asking of us? We should bless who commit evil against us by not only praying for them, but I would go so far as to say that there's actually five applications that come out of this. And, and Peter says the first one, we have to refrain from verbal retaliation. We must keep our tongue from evil. When somebody's coming against us, as believers, we got to keep our tongue from evil. And obviously, the normal response to someone who wrongs us is to speak evil of them, right? And this may happen through gossip. This may happen through talking behind their back. Or this may happen cursing them to their face. But no, Peter's saying, refrain from verbal retaliation. 
The second thing that Peter tells us to do, he says we should fully commit to speaking the truth. Be truth speakers. And he, uses, he says this actually by using a negative. He says, keep your tongue from evil. There's often a tendency when you think about it for us to lie or to embellish a story when we're actually really mad at somebody, right? We have to be, as believers, committed to truth even if it doesn't help our case. Do you guard yourself against the temptation to lie? Do you guard yourself against the temptation to embellish the truth in response to evil? The third thing that we're to do is to reject anything sinful. We must turn from evil. Again, Peter, he recognizes that the natural response for us as believers is to respond with evil. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. They hurt us, we now have to hurt them. But no, he's saying, no, 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 no. Turn from that temptation to respond. An active decision of the mind, the will. Fourth, do righteous acts. Do good. We've got to do good in response to evil. And this includes if they're hungry. Again, I love what Paul writes in, in Romans 12. He writes, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. We have to seek practical ways to bless those who harm us. In what way is God calling you to bless your enemy? Think about that when you leave this morning. Finally, we're supposed to seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. These are actually vigorous actions. There's implicit in this phrase is the analogy of a, a hunter uh, vigorously tracking down his prey. So when you think about it, like a hunter seeking his prey, we have to aggressively pursue peace in these situations. Where are you pursuing peace? Where are you doing everything possible to have reconciliation with people both inside or outside the church? Those who have harmed you or have spoken negatively. What have you done? Paul says, as much as depends on you, live at peace with all men. Sometimes to live at peace, and I've counseled people to do this, sometimes we have to set up boundaries. I don't have a problem. That better be God. I think God's calling. We got to set up boundaries. So important. Setting up the boundaries because maybe some of the people that we naturally live, we've done what we can, but they're so toxic. So we set up boundaries. But we live in peace. That means sometimes we still have to extend the hand. Sometimes test the water. Sometimes you test the water and it's bitter, right? You know then where to go. You know where to receive. But again, Paul is telling us in Romans, as much as depends on you, it's your responsibility to live at peace with all men. So what's your typical response to experiencing suffering or conflict with others? Because again, one of the overwhelming themes in 1 Peter here is suffering, and we're going to get more into it next week. How is God calling you to practice blessing to those who harm you and aggressively pursue reconciliation with them? Like the Bible has to read us when we open it up. Peter then asks this question in verse 13. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, he says you are blessed. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And I think that the question we have to ask is what does he mean by revere Christ as Lord? What does that look like practically? How do we live it out? And Peter says this because often Christ is not literally ruling over our lives. 
We often choose our own way. As believers, sometimes we often choose our own path, which is often the path of least resistance. You can say amen or ouch, but you and I both know I'm right. And so we have to have a reset, and we have to set Christ as Lord over our hearts. We must rule our mind, our will. Allow him to rule our mind, our will, and our emotions. I think we get a better picture of this when we look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, where it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices and holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Sure it is. The problem is, as living sacrifices, when it gets hot, we crawl off the altar. Right? And there's a tendency for us as believers to look for a cooler, less, less resistance place. And yet, Jesus is our example. Right before his suffering, what does he do? He goes to the garden. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He asks for God to take the suffering, the separation from his presence, the wrath away, if it's possible, he says. But then he declares, nevertheless, God, your will be done. He declares, God, I will do your will, regardless of what's going on around me. And I think we need to do this as well in order to accept whatever difficulty we face in life. Let me break it down. Maybe you have a challenging roommate. Or maybe there's difficulty within the family or the church. Or maybe you have a difficult boss. We often want to quit. We want to run off the altar. But I have to encourage you that we have to come to this place where we say that this if this is your will for my life, God, in order, for, in order for you to make me a mature believer, I'll do it, Lord. Your will be done. And sometimes revering Christ as Lord means recommitting to things like prayer, to the study of the word, gathering together with the church or, or our life group. Often trials are allowed in our lives in order to turn us back to these types of disciplines. Sometimes revering Christ as Lord means forgiving somebody or letting go of a hurt. Sometimes revering Christ as Lord means accepting a certain trial that has come our way that you find yourself going through as from God and persevering through it so that we can become more mature. Then Peter goes on, he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give you the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It's in the midst of suffering that our lives shine the most. It's often in the midst of the fire that there are opportunities for us to evangelize in our faith. The word answer here in the original language is is where we get the word apology or apologetic. Defined means to defend one's faith. And so when the heat is on, people will wonder why you're responding the way that you're responding. How come you're not angry or how come you're not fighting back? Why are you persevering through this difficult relationship? Maybe that's a question you're asking yourself, a job, a marriage, maybe it's a church situation. Maybe you're going through a tough time. Let me just say this. Maybe it's there that you'll have the opportunity to encourage other believers in that midst or have the opportunity to evangelize or share your faith with other non-believers. You know, we may feel capable of ministering in our trials, but that is often where God 
uses us and demonstrates his glory the most. We see this in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, way back in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 3. They're about to get thrown into the fire if they don't bow down to the idol that, for the king of Babylon. Look at their apologetic to the king. And not only are they talking to the king, context tells us everybody's watching what's going on. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not defend ourselves before you in this manner. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Here we see their apologetic. They said, the God we serve is able to save us. We should also notice the manner in which they responded to the king. They said, O Nebuchadnezzar, O king. They responded with honorific language. Not horrific, honorific language. They gave him honor. Even right before being thrown into the fire, they are honoring and respecting the king, even in their apologetic. Peter is teaching us to do the same thing. He says, not only must we be prepared to give an apologetic, to give an answer, but we must, but the manner we do it, the way we share it, the way that believers talk is important as well. Look again what he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. Uh, you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Why do you believe what you believe? And how you communicate that is with gentleness and respect. There's a supposed saying attributed to St. Francis that says, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. I think Peter's going at it a different way here. It's not good enough for you to live differently and to preach the gospel only through your actions. You have to be prepared, according to Peter, to use words as well. And if you're really living differently and you're not withdrawing from society, when you think about it, then you will likely be asked what's going on, what makes you so different, and you'll need to be able to prepare to verbalize why you live differently. What is that hope? Why do you believe this way in a gentle and careful way? We're to be engaged in the world, not closing doors to relationships. We're to live our lives for Jesus openly in the middle of an unbelieving world. We have to be ready to explain the reasons why we do, why we live differently. And then Peter, Peter gives us the why. He says, for it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also, suff Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Implied in the text, and we'll see this again as we go on next week, is that believers must be willing to endure suffering. That's not what Christians want to hear. That's not what some Christianity teaches. But believers have to be willing to endure suffering, even unjust suffering from other unbelievers, to endure it as part of the will of God. That makes some people in our culture shake their head. Peter says if you suffer, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. 
the implication that Peter is saying here, and this is a theology of suffering, is that God is in control and that we should be willing to endure the suffering that he allows. God is in control when you think about it, even of our enemies. It was Joseph in Genesis who said, what you meant for bad, God meant for good. He was talking about his brother sending him into slavery. Joseph saw God in control of the trials he found himself in, the trials that his brothers brought to his life. Job, in the same way, also saw suffering as coming from God. Even though it was Satan who was the one who was doing the affliction, it was Job who said, the Lord gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're coming into a theology of suffering in the book of Peter. These people accepted their unjust suffering as part of the will of God and coming from God's wise and just hand. Listen to what Paul says about God's sovereignty, even over trials. In Romans, he says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to the purpose. Many people hate this verse. Many people have used this verse out of context. But one of the things that a believer must do when suffering within the church is to realize that God is still in control. He is in control, and he always has his best for us. Even though it may not be the way we think is best, he is in control, and he works everything for the good in a believer's life, his good. Even the work of their enemies, when you look at it, is used to bring good things into one's life, into God's plan. And if we don't see God's faithful hand in suffering, it will be actually impossible to respond properly to it. We will respond with anger towards others instead of forgiveness. We will harbor bitterness towards others. We'll harbor bitterness towards ourselves, even towards God. And Peter wants his readers to see that God's hand is in the midst of their suffering. They are the persecuted church. He wants them to see God's will. We must do this as well. We must have this view in, the tr in trial in order to suffer in a righteous way. It's not easy. Now we move on to the next passage. Next passage is a controversial passage. It's puzzling. It's not very clear. I'm just going to put that right there. If you scratch your head when you read these passages, you're not alone. That's all I'm going to say, right? It talks about Christ making proclamation to imprisoned spirits. It talks about Noah. It talks about baptism. Martin Luther said this, and I love it. This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still don't know for sure what the apostle meant. I am good with that. And on that, we will close and pray and say amen. So Peter goes into the weeds, and he's saying some strange things. And again, we're going through the book of the Bible. Let's just talk. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. Now there are two primary views. First, it speaks of Jesus ministering through Noah. Noah, again, preached to a rebellious generation before the flood. It's said that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We read that in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. 
Uh, it support, the support for this interpretation is seen back in 1 Peter chapter 1, where it says that the Spirit of Christ ministered through the former prophets. So we can build a theological support of what's being said here. Um, again, the idea is thought that this would encourage the saints who are suffering now for being righteous, because Christ was rejected even through Noah at that time. Again, um, only seven were saved by Noah's and, uh, preaching. So you had the eight words, Noah and his family. Therefore, you know, Peter's trying to draw, some will feel that Peter's trying to draw a comparison to a, a, a small group feelings in the minority against the majority. Persecuted for righteousness. And again, the, the idea is that Peter is trying to encourage people who would ultimately be saved and the unrighteous would be judged. The second view that, that Peter is talking about has this picture of Jesus visiting Hades during his three days in the grave, in the spirit. Now, let me explain a little bit about Hebrew understanding of afterlife. Jesus talked about it in the parable between Lazarus and the rich man. He talks about Sheol, the place of the dead. And again, normal um, theology when it comes regarding uh, the afterlife. So as Jesus, in the parable pictures, he talks about Lazarus, and the rich man, the rich man who had a lot of food, ends up dying, ends up going to Hades. Um, Lazarus was the, the other guy who ends up going um, to paradise. Now remember, Jesus also said to the thief on the cross today, you'll be with me in paradise. As Jesus talks about in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, one's in Hades, one's in paradise, so Hades is hell, right? The Lazarus guy's burning, oh, I gotta get out of here, go tell my family, give me a drop of water. This other guy's in just paradise. There's a gulf, a chasm between the two. Same area, but apart. That's the, the understanding you have to have in your head. So when you come to this passage of scripture, this is what Peter is communicating, something that they already understand. And so the thought is, is that Christ, when he died, went to Hades, the place of the dead, while his body was in the grave, his spirit goes there, and he speaks to the spirits in Hades. And the evidence for the, the, this viewpoint is that that word spirit is not typically used of humans, but of demonic spirits and angels. It would seem that Jesus was there declaring victory over the spirits who had worked really hard in trying to lead people astray during Noah's days back in Genesis 6. There's also more evidence that... Uh, that, uh, that um, we see that, you know, the, let me just jump away from that. There's just a lot of scripture. I just don't want the time. Many would say that these spirits who are mentioned in Genesis 6 as angels were the ones who cohabitated with women during the time of Noah. We call them the Nephilim in, in the scripture and the land. So there, there's a lot of theological connotations that go on here. There's also other scriptures that seem to support that these demons were judged and that they were kept in a special uh, prison of hell, a compartment of Hades, so to speak, unlike other demons that were roaming the earth. And so we see this support, actually, when you go and you begin to read the book of Jude, verses 6 and 7. So what we are trying to understand is that Christ, when he died, he goes down into Hades and he declares a victory over these demons that were active in trying to sabotage God from the early stages. He says, you're done. It's over. And I'm here and I prove it. This would encourage the saints as they're reading Peter's letter. It would have encouraged them um, to realize that 
that Jesus does have the victory, that Christ proclaimed the victory. And therefore, these believers could trust that even though they are suffering, the ultimate victory has already been done. That's the theology behind it. Now, I'm not going to clear this up in a few minutes, but let me at least give you the bottom line, no matter what interpretation somebody takes on this. Both Jesus and Noah lived the way Peter talks about. They were both living engaged with the people around them, and yet they lived distinct lives because of their faith, and they suffered for it. Both suffered but both were ultimately vindicated by God. And there's more that we're not going to untangle this morning, but this is the bottom line. We as believers are united in Christ, and our commitment to Him means that we will likewise suffer. More on that next week. But we will one day be vindicated just as He was. And that's why Peter says we're blessed when we're persecuted, because we're just like Jesus. And we'll be vindicated one day just as he was. And we don't have to be afraid because we revere Christ as Lord. We put him first. Much more than we revere the opinions of those who put us down. Oswald Chambers said this. He said, the most natural thing in the world is to be scared. The clearest evidence that God's grace is at work in our hearts is when we do not get into panics. The remarkable thing about Fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. When we look at it, there is one who's gone ahead of us. And he did not accommodate the culture, and he did not withdraw from culture. Instead, he lived in the world. He had relationships with all kinds of people. He was criticized. He was ultimately killed. But he's been made alive, and his victory has been proclaimed in one day, one day, it will be known to everyone. I will go so far as to say that he is at work in your life, and his victory is also your victory. And the more that we keep our eyes on him, the more that we keep our eyes on Jesus and see what he has done for us, and the more that we revere him as Lord in our lives, the more that we are actually able to engage the culture, not by withdrawing from it, not by accommodating it, but living smack dab in the middle of it as we revere Christ as Lord. When God's people were carted off to Babylon, <coughs> excuse me, in the exile, Carted off against their will. There were some who wanted to live outside of the city of Babylon because Babylon was so evil. As well as that they, they actually hoped to go back to their own land soon. They, they, they were going to go back. They had a point. You have to believe them. They had a point at doing this because the whole purpose of them being carted to Babylon was so that they would be assimilated into the culture. The Bible tells us that a false prophet stood up and he said uh, that they would be back home within a couple of years so so go ahead, stay separate. Stay separate. Right? Sectarian. But we read that Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, he contradicted this. And he gave this advice to the people. So Jeremiah gets up after another prophet does. He says, build houses, settle down, plant your gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they may too have sons and daughters. Increase the number there. Do not dis." Decrease. Also, keep the peace and prosperity of the city. Interesting, right? To which I have carried you into exile. In other words, he's speaking on behalf of God. God is saying, be good citizens. 
Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper too. In other words, don't withdraw like the false prophet wants you to. Move right in. Live amongst the Babylonians. Seek what's best for the city of Babylon, even though you're only exiles. You're only here temporarily. Remember, Peter said we are aliens when we were back in chapter 1. We're only here temporarily, but do your best. And on the other hand, don't be assimilated into the culture like the Babylonians want you to do. Stay distinct and yet live among them and be, what? be a blessing to them. You know, this is much harder than withdrawing or being assimilated in a culture. But this is what God has called the church today to do. The same goes out for us today. Don't withdraw from our world. Make friends with those who aren't Christians. Go to the parties. Hang out with the people after work. Coach soccer. Join your condo committee or a student council. But don't live in a Christian bubble. At the same time, though, be distinct. So that your devotion to God is evident to everyone. Be ready to talk about it when it comes up because it will come up. And this is the hardest, actually, of the options. But it's exactly what believers are called to do. It's what Peter is asking the church to do and asking us to do. It's the best way to engage culture. The best way is not to accommodate it or to withdraw from it. But the best way is to bless it. And you know if you're going to withdraw or assimilate, it's probably not going to cost you very much. It's actually quite easy to do. Because you can go about your regular business. Nobody's going to bother you. But if you don't withdraw, but rather live your faith, it's going to cost you. Peter implies that Christians will face insults. He says in verse 14 that many will suffer for what is right. That we will be threatened. He says in verse 16 that there will be those who speak maliciously against your good behavior. So there's a definite cost in doing this. There's a definite cost in living for Jesus. We have an estimated 70 million people who have lost their lives as a result of their faith in Christ in the past 2,000 years. 45 million of these people are people who likely died in the 20th century. Talk about a cost. 45 million people killed for their faith in the last century, it's estimated that more people have been martyred for Christ in the past 50 years than in the church's first 300 years. Some 200 million Christians are suffering for their faith right now. Part of our responsibility here is to pray for them. And here, closer to the home, we're not likely to face open persecution yet. And wearing a mask is not persecution. If we stay engaged, no withdrawal, and we live out our hope in Christ, we're likely to get the occasional raised eyebrow or be ridiculed. The fact of the matter is that people do love some parts of our faith. People generally think highly of Jesus and they like his teachings. We like what he says about forgiveness and going the extra mile. Oh, love, everybody, love. but they don't appreciate a historic view of Christian sexual ethics. Or they may not like it if you believe that Christ offers a hope that can't be found through or anywhere else. It may be okay if you have a faith, but just keep it private and don't share it. You see, there's a cost to being engaged with culture and living distinctively. I don't know if you've ever watched The Band of Brothers. 
about soldiers in World War II. There's a scene where Lieutenant Winters is about to lead his troops into the Battle of Bulge. And I, I love history. I love this stuff all the time. And another soldier pulls the lieutenant aside and he says, looks like you guys are going to go, you're going in, you're going to be surrounded. And without hesitation, the lieutenant replies to the soldier, he says, we're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. Very interesting. You know, every once in a while, there's just something in a line in a movie that just sticks out to you. We're supposed to be surrounded. As Christians, we're meant to be surrounded. We're meant to be right in the middle of things. We're meant to be engaged with people and life, and yet living with hearts that revere Christ as Lord. That means we're going to be surrounded. Sometimes, as Jesus said, that people will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, in Matthew 5. Other times, Jesus said, they will persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. When we don't accommodate culture or withdraw from it, but instead live within it distinctively, we pay a price. And by the way, that's why it's so important that we become a community of faith that's characterized by the qualities that Peter mentions in verse 8. Being like-minded, being sympathetic, loving one another, compassionate and humble. And to live this way, the church stops being a place that we just attend. It becomes a community of support in which we're free from the insults and the hostility that comes from those outside of the church. But it's actually absolutely critical if we're going to live in the culture that we be distinct. Peter concludes with what I would say almost a doxology of praise. Last two verses say, It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. In other words, Peter ends up saying, Hey, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. Next week, we pick it up on suffering. A theology of suffering, do you have one? Does it even fit where your mind is in today's day and age? Why don't you stand with me as we pray? Father, help us see today whether our response is to withdraw from culture or to accommodate it. And whatever our normal response is, we pray that you would transform it. Give us hearts that want to bless our friends and neighbors and our enemies. Help us to seek the peace and prosperity of the city and help us to be the best citizens of our city, of our province and nation. Help us see Jesus who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and he did it to bring us to God. We've been saved by his resurrection and his victory is our victory. May we revere him in our hearts. And Lord, may this transform the way we live from day to day. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In ancient time, the one who blessed extend his hands for a blessing. Those receiving the blessing did likewise. And if you are able-bodied to help us stack chairs eight high at the end of this gathering, I'd appreciate it. But soul sanctuary, go now to work for God's purposes. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus and be filled with the same love and look to the interest of others. 
with reverence for God, continue to work out your salvation. And may God quench your thirst with love and consolation. May Jesus Christ strengthen you and encourage you. And may the Holy Spirit lead you on and make your joy complete. So go in love, serve the Lord, and live the church. We'll see you next week. Amen.